Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Katie Hausman and Professor Sam Stolper of the University of Michigan about a new working paper they've co-authored called Inequality, Information Failures, and Air Pollution. Katie and Sam take an economics lens to the problem of environmental justice and identify a new and important channel through which these problems can arise, the role of information. I'm biased because Katie and Sam are friends of mine, uh, but I think this work is fascinating, so I hope you'll stay with us. Okay, Katie Hausman and Sam Stolper, my friends here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We are sitting in my living room on a Thursday afternoon having a cocktail and recording our podcast. So I'm really excited to uh, to be here with you, and thank you both for joining us on Resources Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So Sam and Katie, we're going to talk about a recent paper that you've co-authored on environmental justice and economics. But before we get into the substance... We always like to ask our guests how they got interested in the world of environmental policy. So um, how did you guys get into this? So I grew up in northern Minnesota, and outdoor education was a really big part of my upbringing. Um, My parents and my teachers emphasized a real respect for the natural environment, for the Great Lakes, for the woods of northern Minnesota, um, and our duty to protect the natural environment. For me, it was really my first job um, in economics um, as a research assistant for economists who are studying environmental policy. Um, I, up to that point, had enjoyed hiking and uh, planet Earth and uh, (laughs) um, stuff like that, but I didn't consider environment my calling exactly, Um, but I did statistical analysis (laughs) um, to help uh, evaluate environmental policy, and I felt it was empowering um, to be able to use math and statistics to say something uh, constructive or critical about um, stuff that I think is uh, that people care about. Um, and so I went into a PhD in public policy thinking maybe I'll keep studying environmental policy. Um, and that's what I did. Great. And Katie, I don't think you mentioned that the place where you grew up is a really beautiful place, Duluth, Minnesota. It's right on the lake. Tell us about it a little. Yeah, it is amazing. I used to spend afternoons after school walking down to sit on the shores of Lake Superior in January when nobody else was there, and so it was just me and the lake. Um, And I moved away and told everybody how beautiful the Midwest was and then found out that they had a different vision of the Midwest than I had. Yes, the Midwest has many splendors, and some of them more splendorous than others, I suppose. Um, okay, so let's talk about this recent paper that you've co-authored, which we'll have a link to on uh, on the show page. Um, there, you start off the the paper by giving us a brief introduction to the idea uh, of environmental justice and the notion that. Uh, polluting sites are disproportionately located in low-income communities uh, and or communities of color. Um, So to get us started, can you just give us a few examples of how that dynamic plays out in the real world? The one that comes immediately to mind um, is uh, the siting of a landfill in Warren County, North Carolina. You know, that's, uh, uh, in many people's eyes, the incident that ignited, I think, the environmental justice movement um, uh, nationally. some 30,000 pounds of polychlorinated biphenyls, um, PCBs, which I think are known toxics to to humans, dumped along the side of the road, um, all across in a number of counties in North Carolina. The government 
knows it needs to dispose of that, you know, pick up that waste and hold it somewhere, it's going to be in a landfill. And the two final locations that it, the government of North Carolina considers are um, uh, an existing publicly owned landfill in Chatham County, North Carolina, and a uh, recently foreclosed privately owned piece of land in Warren County. And the socioeconomics and the demographics of those two places, those two counties are very different. Also the water table is apparently very shallow in Warren County. Warren County, a lot more poverty and a lot more people of color um, and no mayor and no city council at the time. Um, and so despite possibly a much less suitable place, Warren County being, that's where the landfill goes and there's lots of protests that, um, and marches that gain national attention followed by lawsuits. That's the example that pops into my head first. Yeah. And Sam, just briefly, roughly when was that decision being made? I can't remember off the top Late of my head. Late 70s. Okay, great. Yeah. But just, you know, it's, you know, we wouldn't be studying this if we, if this wasn't um, still a problem. And um, I live in Detroit and uh, for 30 years until last April, there was an incinerator operating in very near to the, the geographic center of Detroit. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to dispose of trash somehow, but an incinerator in the heart of the city um, raised my eyebrows when I moved there. Um, it uh, operates in the heart of Detroit, which is uh, more than 80% black. Um, the suburbs are the locus of a lot of white flight, and most of the trash that recent, in recent years got burned in Detroit was from the suburbs. Um, it was closed suddenly um, to many people's great joy um, last April, though. So one, you know, theory for the environmental justice concerns that uh, people sometimes point out and you do discuss in your paper is the idea that sometimes people come to the nuisance. Um, so the idea that there is, you know, a polluting site and that people end up actually moving towards that polluting site for a variety of reasons. Can you talk about that theory and how it could explain some of these uh, sort of dynamics that you're describing? Sure. So let's set aside racial and ethnic disparities for a minute. We can come back to those and focus on the low-income uh, aspect. So low-income families obviously face really binding budget constraints. They need to make difficult choices about where to spend their money. Um, and that can mean choosing a cheaper house in a neighborhood that has more pollution, if it means more money is left over to spend on utilities and food and transportation and other really necessary important things. Um, so some analysts, especially in the economics literature, um, have emphasized that environmental justices speak to and are related to broader economic injustices. Um, and they've wanted to emphasize policy solutions that focus on income redistribution rather than focusing on the environmental outcomes themselves. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And so that, that's one possible explanation for the types of um, uh, injustices that we might see in the real world. But there are plenty of others uh, that you discuss in the paper. Maybe I shouldn't say plenty, but there are at least several others that you discuss in the paper. So can you tell us more about those, uh, those other possible explanations? I like to name first discrimination. Um, for example, decisions that um, influence citing decisions that are motivated directly by racism or by an implicit acceptance of others' racism. Um, widespread racism in the housing market for decades that we've known about um, uh, can affect the exposure of different uh, people to uh, pollution. 
Yeah, I'd second that. Um, related concerns that have been raised in the literature, um, you know, when new facilities are getting cited, maybe they choose um, where to go based on where they think people have the least political power, the least ability to put up a fight if a new neighborhood is coming in. Um, so that again is related to racism and discrimination and broader patterns of injustice in the U.S. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So with that background in place, let's now get into kind of the substance of your paper and, and some, of the, uh, some of the approaches that you take, which I really enjoyed and uh, you know, thought was really, really exciting. Um, one of the things that was new to me, and I, I think is new in the literature, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but the, the idea that um, there's another channel through which environmental injustice uh, can occur, and that's through the role of information or the lack of information. So one way you sort of demonstrate this is by documenting how we've learned over time that certain air pollutants uh, are actually much more harmful than we previously had thought. So how does that fact that we've learned about um, dangers from certain air pollutants, that those we've learned more about them, we've learned that they are riskier than we previously thought, how do you use that to sort of illustrate this story uh, of environmental justice? Yeah, sure. Um, great question. Um, so we make decisions about um, where to live and, and anything else that affects our exposure to environmental quality or, or, or pollution um, based on the information we have at the time. Um, and to the extent that that's incomplete uh, or wrong, um, then we may come to regret those decisions or just um, we may have made different decisions um, had we had that informa had different information originally. Um, and when you just look at the march of science, of scientific progress, um, uh, or if you look at the toxic release inventory in the United States, um, which has expanded over time, um, it's the implication is that we learn that there are more pollutants that are harmful um, and that maybe some of those pollutants are more harmful than we previously thought. Um, one of the examples that we uh, that we describe and investigate in the paper um, is the case of ambient lead uh, pollution in air um, in the United States. So the Environmental Protection Agency has a, an, an ambient lead standard um, uh, on the books and it has for a lot of years. It's changed precisely once um, over the last 20 years uh, and that was in I think 2008. Um, and the standard was tightened. It dropped from 1.5 micrograms per uh, cubic meter to 0.15 micrograms per cubic meter. So that's a, you know. <laughs> that's a big change. Uh, yeah, uh, a whole order of magnitude difference, a big change, a big drop. And the EPA came out and said, you know, this decision is motivated um, by scientific progress, by new understanding, new evidence from scientific research that says lead is worse than we thought it was. So. One natural question to ask in light of that change um, is, well, who is bearing the burden of that misinformation? What are the consequences of, of us having been wrong? And um, the way we do that in the paper, one way to do that is to investigate the distribution of uh, lead uh, in air pollution uh, uh, across the country at the time of that, right before that change happened. So. Um, people had already sorted, had already chosen places to live, uh, 
And the people who are presumably living closer to areas with high lead concentrations, those are the ones that seem to lose the most out of this new real realization uh, that lead is a lot worse than we thought. Um, so who are those folks? Um, well, they tend to be poor and they tend to be um, less likely to be white. Yeah, so that scientific march of progress um, uh, comes out in a couple of different ways. One is that we learn about new biological pathways that we didn't know about. So we're learning more and more about cognitive impacts of particulate matter, for instance. Um, or we learn about cardiovascular impacts in addition to respiratory impacts. Um, another mechanism through which it can come out is that we tend to find out that facilities were polluting more than we thought rather than less. I mean, lots of times we had it right and we knew how much a, a facility was polluting, but when we get it wrong, we tend to find out after the fact that there was a leak that we didn't know about. Um, and so the facility, either unintentionally or intentionally, was releasing more than the public knew about. And then again, who's living next to that facility? It tends to be low-income communities uh, and communities of color. And so this sort of tells us that even if, you know, the entire world has essentially the same amount of information, or at least the, the people potentially living closer to these places, if everyone has the same information, there's still a disproportionate impact that is being borne by lower income or, or people of color. Do we have any sense of like, like why that would be? So that's really important, that part that everybody has the same wrong information and the same wrong processing of the information that is available. We're not saying that people in these communities know less. Um, if anything, they may know more because they're engaging in like grassroots efforts to figure out what's going on uh, at industrial facilities nearby. Um, so it's the, because of the way pollution dissipates, right? So if we find out that a facility is releasing more than we thought or that the health damages from that are bigger than we thought, who's impacted the people that are living right next door? As you get farther out uh, and you get into neighborhoods that have higher incomes and have been able to buy property farther away, um, it just doesn't matter as much anymore because the, the pollution has dissipated, it's settled out. Yeah, I, I think Katie said it really well. I mean, in the lead example, we have these standards um, that we set for lead or for you know any pollutant, and there are. It's part of the reason we set these standards is because we think there are these nonlinearities. Um, so um, below a certain threshold, uh, it's a, you know for lead we actually think no amount of lead is safe, but for some pollutants, um, below a certain level is maybe okay, and above a certain level is uh, less okay. So um, so even if everybody has the same information or lack thereof, it's only some subset of the population that is exposed to above that threshold that um, might be negatively affected. Right. And so I think a related point that you uh, relay in the paper is the idea that sometimes when people live in lower income communities, those lower income communities might have what are sometimes referred to as, you know, nuisance elements, or I forget the exact term, but, you know, essentially nuisances in the community, such as maybe a, an ugly factory or a smelly something or other that's going on as a result of some industrial process, those, you know, are, are often found in lower income communities, as, as we've discussed. Um, and as you're sort of implying with some of your comments, some of these smells or sites might actually be much more than just nuisances. They could actually be driving substantial pollution that might be unknown to the people living in the community. Um, so could you just talk a little bit more about how that dynamic can drive environmental injustice and how you kind of explore it in your paper? 
Yeah, so suppose that we thought that nobody knew anything about pollution. That's clearly not right, but as sort of one bounding example. Um, you're still going to get low-income folks living next to these nuisances because they're willing to accept the noise or the ugly view in exchange for having more money left over for the other things that they really need in their lives. So it makes sense that, you know, I might be willing to live next to the highway, even though it's loud and not as pretty as the Lake Superior that I grew up on. Um, but what matters is that that highway is also a source of cars and trucks that are putting out particulate matter and things that transform into ozone and um, other things that are bad for my health and maybe I didn't have enough information to really incorporate that into my decision. Um, and it's not because I'm dumb or uninformed, it's that we're all getting it wrong. So I'd challenge your listeners to think about whether they're up to date on all the epidemiology um, and whether they're fully informed. Um, I, I'd guess that most of us are not I'll, well, maybe your listeners are, but <laughs> our listeners are fully informed. About <laughs> your everything. listeners are fully informed. But Unlike their host, much of the <laughs> much of the public is not. Yeah, it, actually, it's, our discussions about particulate matter, you know, both with other colleagues as well as with you, is one of the reasons we actually have a particulate monitor, a particulate matter monitor here at my house where we're sitting right now. We actually can can uh, detect in real time the the air quality that's that's around here, and that's one of the examples of someone who has the means being able to inform you know myself and my family about things that we might be concerned about. Can I see your monitor when we're done? It's it's actually right there. We have an indoor one um, that's over there on the counter, and we have an outdoor one that I'll I'll show you later. Cool. Yeah, we're decked out with PM 2.5 monitors here at the Rainy What about household. the other pollutants? <laughs> That's, yeah, those are more expensive than those Touché, those Sam. Yeah. So, um, so there are lots and lots of really interesting implications that come out of this paper, and I, um, I just kind of want to open it up for, for you to um, summarize what you think some of the key lessons are, either for policymakers or for, you know, just citizens. Katie, you're sort of, you know, encouraging us to be more aware of, of what the research is telling us. But what are some of the, the, you know, other key takeaways that you hope people will come away with from, from this analysis? Well, one is that we think that information is not just kind of a channel through which uh, environmental inequity or injustice may emerge, but it's it also kind of interacts with all the other channels, um, kind of overlaying on top of them. Uh, and when I teach about environmental justice in my courses, I like to, I, I like order and I like to kind of like have a mutually exclusive list of like causes of environmental injustice, but then at the end I have to acknowledge that actually none of these are mutually exclusive and they all interact with each other. <laughs> um, and in the case of information, it's become clear as we have tried to slot information into the literature and these various causes um, that one way to view it is as being overlaid on top of the existing um, causes of dis disproportionate exposure. That is to say, whatever the initial cause of uh, the distribution of pollution exposure we see, um, and we tend to see um, that uh, the poor and, and people of color uh, uh, have a disproportionate um, exposure to that pollution, whether that's because of sorting on income, uh, the coming to the nuisance, moving to the nuisance uh, cause, or because 
um, because of the so-called path to least resistance or discrimination or even just firms trying to minimize their costs and so seeking uh, cheap land or labor and um, that uh, causing polluting firms to co-locate with people with less resources. Um, any of those causes may produce disproportionate exposure. Information or misinformation in this case um, interacts with all of them to um, in our examples and in our models actually um, exacerbate that disproportionate exposure. I'd add two things. Um, one is, you know, information is a public good. Um, and so basic theory says it's going to be underprovided. Um, and it's really important that government agencies invest in getting information and releasing information. There's some cause for optimism that, you know, monitoring technologies are getting cheaper and easier to deploy. The monitor that you talked about um, for your house, bucket brigades and other community-based monitoring initiatives. There's some cause for optimism in, you know, the march of scientific progress, um, both from the government and at grassroots and individual levels, means we know more and more um, and we can do a better job of incorporating environmental damages into our everyday decision uh, making. So that's, um, I think that's a cause for optimism. But it's also worth pointing out, we haven't said it yet in our conversation, a very obvious point, which is that, um, you know, when low income households are hit by pollution damages, obviously they're the ones least able to adapt to those uh, and deal, deal with the health costs of them. Um, and we didn't say that, but I, I <laughs> think it's worth noting. Um, and we incorporate that into our framework. Um, in the paper, because that's a really important, uh, important point. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just uh, say one more thing, which is basically to affirm what you said earlier, Daniel. Um, that's why I didn't lead with this in, after you asked this question, because um, you already said it. Uh, but I'll just <laughs> confirm, I'll just affirm uh, that we think one of the most important points in this paper is the the fact that the misinformation can be uniform, right? I think I've read in numerous places and heard the argument numerous times, not just when it comes to environment, but um, when it comes to justice considerations and access for any number of goods, that um, differences in, the, um, in how informed people are uh, across type, um, perhaps uh, levels of wealth or education, or the cost of the differences in the cost of obtaining information across types, across people, um, could generate these inequities. But what we're trying, what what emerges from our modeling and thought exercise is that that doesn't need to be the case, and we don't need to assume that some people have more information than others when that may not even be accurate or fair. Um, that we can all have the same amount of information, and that can nonetheless lead to inequity. Yeah, it's super interesting. And um, I remember when I was talking to you, Katie, in particular, as, as you and Sam were sort of dreaming up this project and starting to work on it. Um, but Sam, I, I you know wonder if either of you have any any thoughts. And maybe you've already spoken to it, Sam. But, but I remember you were sort of interested in particularly communicating some of these messages to economists in particular. Um, are there any sort of particular lessons that you think economists uh, should should really pay attention to, maybe more so than like the general public. 
And if you don't want to answer that question, that's <laughs> no, fine. No, I'm happy too. to answer it. It's just such a big one. Yeah. Uh, that's a good, big, meaty question. Um, our econ models are super useful for stripping down extraneous things and highlighting what mechanisms really matter uh, in policymaking um, and in the decisions that people make in their everyday lives. Sometimes that means we strip away too much complexity and we get rid of what really matters. And I think historically we've done too much stripping away of um, important things about information and political power. Uh, and it's time to bring some of that back into our basic modeling. Yeah, I think I totally agree. And it, it, uh, it seems to me that citing information and how we model it and how we might like, you know, over-assume uh, the level of in informedness in our, in our modeling exercises and in our interpretation of results um, is accurate and also a relatively more benign thing to say <laughs> to economists as something to consider, that maybe we should um, incorporate imperfect information more ubiquitously uh, 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 or to a, you know, to a greater degree in uh, thinking about willingness to pay for environmental quality um, and the decisions we, we make about where to live and work. Um, you know, the less, the, not, not less benign, but uh, less safe thing <laughs> to suggest is that we need, to, we need to take seriously justice considerations. Um, you know, recently it feels like there's a lot more um, study of environment, of what people would call environmental justice um, in economics and by economists. And I think for a while, you know, I'm, I've only been in this field for 10, 12 years, um, uh, so I'm relatively new, but it, it seems like there's a trend towards studying more um, distributional considerations and distributional impacts. Um, and I just hope that that continues um, uh, because I think that's one of the reasons that, um, that Com communities of non-economists don't necessarily want see eye to eye or trust um, communities of economists. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really nice note to end on. Before we go to our final segment, it's uh, you know maybe maybe I don't know if that's, that's a provocative statement to some economists. It certainly doesn't seem very provocative to me. It seems pretty pretty reasonable, but. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I'm really happy we're, we're ending on that note. And in case you heard any slapping noises uh, in the recording, Sam is gesticulating a little bit and hitting his knees. So no one is smacking <laughs> Sam as he's <laughs> giving his answer to this question. I apologize uh, he, to the audience. He's perfectly safe. Um, so let's go on now. And uh, I'd like to ask both of you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So something that you've been reading or watching or listening to or consuming through any media of your choice that you would recommend to our audience. So I know this is a question you ask of your readers from uh, previous podcasts. Uh, I'm nonetheless not prepared to answer traditionally with a single <laughs> book or piece of media. Um, I think I do a fair amount of uh, media consumption, including reading. It's generally not focused. Um, uh, at least my leisure reading is not really focused on uh, environment, uh, environmental considerations. But there are exceptions, but I think they would be out of date, those, ref those recommendations that okay. I would give. Okay. Um, but, you know, one, a thing that I, a topic that I am thinking a lot about and trying to read a lot about um, it is water affordability um, in our cities, in this country, in the world. Um, I, it's uh, 
recently come to my attention that uh, that this is an increasing problem. You know, because of trends in income levels and income uh, distribution, and because of aging infrastructure, et cetera. Um, for certain populations, it's becoming really difficult to afford water. And I just think that ability to pay cannot possibly be um, a, a limiting factor for water access in this, uh, in the city I live in, in this country, in this world. Uh, and so I am hoping to um, be studying that um, and, and helping to, to change the story. And I would encourage other people to think about water affordability too. Yeah. And there's a I mean, this has been a really big issue in Detroit for the last several years. Is that how it sort of came to your attention? or Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, trying to uh, understand, you know, talking to people who've been living in Detroit a lot longer than me and working on uh, issues related to the environment um, in Detroit, uh, finding out from them that water affordability is at the top of that list. Um, it's a compelling and, and terrible problem. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how it <laughs> came to me. I, I'm prepared to give a more traditional answer in the sense that I am always prepared to talk about what novels I'm reading. Yes, I can, I can vouch for that. Which you can, yes. Um, so uh, the, I guess the two things I've um, enjoyed that I've read recently, um, one, Hop on Pop. Can't go wrong with Hop on Pop. <laughs> Katie and I both have small children, uh, it's worth pointing out here. Um, but you asked about things related to the environment, so um, I guess I need a second answer. Uh, I'm going to go with The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Um, not, not narrowly environment, but science, government, capitalism, freedom, anarchy, community, family. It's got it all. Small stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So that when you're relaxing, great. you're you're getting heavy. Is yeah. that nonfiction or fiction? <laughs> fiction. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you should read it. It's great. Great. Okay, so so we have all sorts of recommendations for today. We have entire fields to study from Sam. We have children's books from Katie, and we have uh, heavy heavy sci-fi from uh, from Katie as well. Or I, maybe I shouldn't say it's heavy. I'm not sure. Yeah, but in a fun way. Okay, great. So um, so thank you again, uh, Katie and Sam, my friends, for coming over uh, to the house today, talking to us about your work on environmental justice. We really appreciate this work, and we really appreciate you coming on Resources Radio and telling us about it. Thank you so much, Thank Daniel. you, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.